Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. Uh, we always focus on a new film, either on streaming or a brand new film in general. I guess the box office is open now. They opened this week. So there are new movies. There's that new Russell Crowe movie that's actually playing at AMC theaters right now. So maybe we'll have to do one of those. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll gear up in our PPE and go to a movie uh, and <laughs> see mean, something new. I'm, uh, a, for now, I'm a public school teacher, so I don't I don't get any PPE. Oh, you don't? You don't get like a mask or anything? <laughs> I get one, oh, man, that, one cloth mask. That is so brutal. Um, <laughs> we've been focusing mostly on streaming films. Uh, we usually do a brand new movie uh, to streaming one week, and then we do an older one that's sort of premiering on a streaming network like uh, Netflix or Hulu. What do we have this week? Um, yeah, we were kind of uh, trying to blame each other for choosing this one. <laughs> um, it's the new David Ayer film, The Tax Collector. Uh, starring Bobby Soto and Shia LaBeouf, uh, along with some other interesting choices for supporting roles. Um, it had a simultaneous theatrical and VOD release um, earlier this month in, at August 7th. What the heck is this movie about? Uh, I, I see that in our notes uh, document, I had a pretty brief description of the plot and you decided to expand it. <laughs> I just copied what was in Rotten Tomatoes. I just felt like, uh, I mean, what, try to remember what your brief synopsis, synopsis was. What was it? Uh, to quote unquote tax collectors collect money for a gang leader and then there's a rival gang leader. The end. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's pretty good. I think this one, it talks about, I like this last sentence, uh, or Wizards is like, he's the crime boss. I'm going to read the whole thing. A crime thriller set in the streets of Los Angeles. Family man David, Bobby Soto, and his longtime partner, Creeper, Shia LaBeouf, are tax collectors for the crime lord Wizard, meaning they collect his cut from the profits of local gangs' illicit dealings. But when Wizard's old rivals returns to Los Angeles from Mexico, the business is upended and David finds himself desperate to protect what matters most to him more than anything else, his family. So a little bit more, it's a little bit like, but, but like when you see this thing, you could literally just say it's, it's a, it's a gang movie about people killing each other. Yep. Um, I don't think there's really the family part of it as we get into it, we'll, we'll come up a little bit more, but it, it's I mean, definitely, that was in the thesis statement. There was a, there's a graphic that is the thesis statement for the film in sepia tone uh, before uh, we see any live action shots right where it says uh, and it looks like it's like cgi from 1995 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's really bad like that's the first thing i saw on twitter about this movie was someone like this is actually in the movie i think you posted it i don't even know who posted it yeah uh, yeah i forget who it was um but it's uh it's 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 I was going to say it's a trip, but it's really not. Um, it's uh, I think my letterboxd review was uh, I'm going to have boring nightmares tonight. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it's yeah. It, I mean, maybe let's just let's do our thing. Let's trace this. Let's, Where the hell yeah, well, did uh, David Ayer, who's probably best known nowadays for uh, bringing Suicide Squad to the screen, um, but uh probably cut his teeth with co-writing the original Fast and Furious as well as the Oscar winning Training Day. The script is not Oscar winning. That was Denzel, right? Yeah. That was the only Yeah, Oscar just that I think just got. Denzel, yeah. Um 
but yeah, the uh, so what what the heck? I mean, that he also made probably another probably the only he he's made a lot of crime LA movies, right? He's obsessed, he, obsessed. With crime. He grew up Southside LA, correct? Yeah, yeah. So he um, so like he had this like heyday like in the early two thousands with Training mm-hmm. Day, Fast and the Furious. Dark Blue, which did you see? Did did you watch, no. force yourself to watch it? Please I, I, watch I, that movie. I, I've already, I've already purchased one David Ayer film. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll probably it's worth see seeing. Bright. <laughs> it's worth seeing. Oh, Bright is woo. Nearly still haven't seen that. <laughs> uh, he had his yeah heyday back then, and like he's continued. And this is going to be, I think, a reoccurring discussion on this podcast: is how does this guy keep on getting solid work? Right. Uh, it's not just one-offs. Like this is a little bit more. That this movie costs thirty million dollars to make. Like this is not an indie film, right? <laughs> like in any traditional sense. It, um, it's like it's so. Uh, yeah, it's a, he's obsessed with Los Angeles. He's obsessed with South Central. Uh, I think you know, as a kid, he was a troubled kid on the East Coast. Got kicked out of his house. Uh, moved into with, with his cousin. This is like the early '80s uh, in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, and he constantly brings it up in interviews, mm-hmm. I think, because he feels like there's definitely, I think, now more a lot more criticism of like the stuff that he covers. It's not only the fact that he focuses mostly on South Central Los Angeles and a lot of gang culture related to that area, but also the police. Right. Um, you know, he did End of Watch, um, obviously Training Day, SWAT, uh, Street Kings is that a cop movie? It's kind of yeah, be, right? based okay. on a James Elroy novel, uh, but it's okay. Keanu, so it's yeah, it's very strange. But and yeah, then, so like it's the Harsh Times was probably the 2005 Christian Bale movie, the only like the one that's most similar to yeah to what he's doing with the Tax Collector. Yeah, I would say so. Although I've only seen the poster to that, <laughs> I can tell from the poster that it looks very similar to this. It, yeah, I mean, it looks trashy, right? Like it. it I mean, I, that's my big question that I think we should kind of put out there because I would like it answered before we st- yeah. <laughs> end around minute 35 or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is does is, is there a sense of self-awareness of the, you know, kind of Z-grade straight to DVD mid-90s vibe that is happening in this movie? Oh no! Oh, okay. Not at all. I would say absolutely not. <laughs> right, like, so there's no. I didn't know it was that easy. Of there's a no showgirls <laughs> irony here. Like this is. I think this is just. Yeah, I think he's just a dude. I think he's just a guy <laughs> who lives in Los Angeles and like hangs out at martial arts gyms. That's where he met Bobby Soto for right, this movie at a dojo. Uh, at a dojo, I think he's just, and maybe because I'm not super broy. But I know that dudes just are out there who are like this. They lift a lot of weights and I see him yeah. at the gym all the time or I used to. And like they just have like a very sort of, you know, you think for someone who is a pretty good writer, right? Like he wrote some pretty good movies. I would say like the script to Training Day is pretty good. Um Fast and the Furious. I mean, these are. I'll say this. He's Dark like, Blue is not a good script. Uh, he, he, brought, I mean, he writes. I don't know what I'm saying. Scripts. Yeah, successful. He, I mean, tra- I I keep coming back to Training Day because I was so like even as like a high schooler when that movie came yeah. out, I was still like very confused why it landed Denzel an Oscar nomination. When it's not very good. I don't think it's a good no, movie at all. It's it's pretty bad, but like Denzel yeah. elevates it. Uh, so it's, it's just very confusing and I didn't see end of watch. I confused it with the James Gray movie. We own the night. 
Um, but I mean, I know there's oh, a lot that's of that's a great movie. <laughs> that is a great movie. That's why I thought yeah, yeah. I thought End of Watch was good. But I've I've heard people actually say uh, that that's kind of on another level from his other movies. I kind of like End of Watch. Okay. I think it's an okay movie. I thought it was definitely very different than the other stuff that he's done. Um, but yeah, he's I think he's just a guy who loves to think about. I guess the time that he was growing up in this area. I don't think he lives there now, does he? He must live in like Malibu or something. Right. He's like he lives in like Col- like not Culver City, like, you know, I don't know, Palisades. Yeah. Like I mean, a really nice area. The weirdest thing, though, is that like, I mean, he bounced around from Illinois to Minnesota to Maryland uh, in his early years. But and then after South Central, he joined the United States Navy. So it's like, yeah, I, I feel like it's a very like I I know that like when you come of age, like wherever you are, that kind of sticks with you and stays with you to some degree. But it it it, it kind of feels at this point like he doesn't want to let go or that like, I don't know, this is a whole question that maybe this is a better kind of opening question before we get into more of the details of the um, conception and production is um, like, is he coming back to this, this place, this setting um, meaningfully? Or is he kind of exploiting because there's a lot of talk about, you know, uh, before Shia LaBeouf's character uh, was really known about, it really seemed like he was doing brownface. I mean, David Ayer is white himself and he wrote and directed. Yeah, he's giving a lot of parts to Latino, Latina actors. um, But uh, I mean, he's only representing them as like horrible criminals. Yeah, I mean... I would say, okay, so it goes back to the sort of aesthetic that he has. Like, there's no, I don't think there's any irony to his aesthetic. And I kind of think that he is going back to this world, I want to say kind of out of respect. Uh, And I don't really see it necessarily. There's some exploitation going on, of course. Like, he's a white man making this movie in an industry that like props up people like him and lets him fail repeatedly. I mean, he's the perfect <laughs> example of it, right? Yeah. Him and Brent Ratner, um, <laughs> you know, like, so there's that part of it, but I think in the actual storytelling, I don't see a lot. I think he does respect um, at least the, the world that he knew growing up there. I don't think he has any connection to it much now. Uh, but I don't see it as sort of super exploitative, like, oh, I'm going to go into this, you know, underprivileged area and sort of tell their story for them. It doesn't really have that vibe to it, yeah. to me at least. I mean, so, um, supposedly Soto and him, and Soto is Latino, uh, built this story together, these characters. Is that right? Even though David Ayer is <laughs> the only writing credit? <laughs> yeah, you would think that Soto would get a writing credit if that was true. Right. Or a, so- uh, a story so credit. Be- I don't know. We built the story together. We worked together. We collaborated that's what Soto said. I mean, I don't know. Like, he also, I think I would say this about um, uh, Ayer that, like, he's the type of guy who would take credit <laughs> yeah. no matter what. You know what I mean? Like, he's just, he just has this sort of vibe to him. You know, he, he reminds me of a lot, and this might be super insulting to this guy, but whatever. Peter Berg. Ooh. Uh, he reminds me a lot of Peter Berg. A guy I some- once respected. I never respected him uh, <laughs> ever because I, did, I had this like gut feeling that he just, yeah. I don't know. He, there's a similar, like maybe it's like, cause I don't understand men like this. Right. He's just like super bro uh, and like makes these like not good movies that are pretty popular. And like, there's, I don't know. There's like this, this thick layer of broness going on on an existential it's, level. Yeah. It's I like just don't toxic get. masculinity personified. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that you, yeah, I guess you would call it toxic masculinity. There's just all, there's something about it just like, it's uneasy to me, um, you know, what this thing is all about. And like, you know, looking at like the conception of this, you know, there wasn't a lot of detail. One thing I also noticed too, he did not do interviews for this movie. Uh, So the interview people were Soto, uh, LaBeouf didn't do interviews. It was like people on the cast outside those two did, you know, talk about this film, but he didn't talk about it. Right. Which I thought was strange because it's almost like, was did he know that this was getting dumped on some level? Did yeah. he think that like this wasn't going to get like a full release because of the pandemic and he wasn't super into it? Or was he avoiding the brown face controversy? Right. And Let, didn't want to get involved. Right. And because also LaBeouf didn't really have uh, a lot of no, a lot of like press not. for this. It was mostly Soto. And I, you know, found a interviews with uh, some of the Chicano rappers that uh, had parts in it, including the the lead villain, the big bad um, uh, Conejo, uh, who, uh, who 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 said a number of things, where like and also like a very small bit part. There was a a, Holly, a Hollywood Reporter uh, interview with uh, the guy who plays Danny, who I think has two lines in the movie. It's just yeah. like yeah, they're it's like really really scraping. I also saw in a review uh, that was probably one of the most incendiary negative reviews. I know we're jumping around here, but Brian Tellerico, I think, made a good point on RogerEbert.com that perhaps uh, this movie wasn't actually finished before the pandemic happened. And Oh, wow. I didn't even think about that. And that perhaps an interesting they, point. they cobbled it together in the editing room because they knew they didn't want to like go back to, to try to finish it because who knows when the pandemic would be over. Wow, that's an interesting thought. But yeah, that's that's entirely possible. It kind of has that little bit of that sort of um, puzzle piece together sort of feel to it. Right. um, Or cobbled together, I should say. It does not feel coherent. No, no. Like, yeah, the story is all over the place. Like, it's a pretty messy thing. I mean, I think one thing, too, that I picked out sort of and looking at, like, how this thing was actually made. um, The financing deal doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, explain this to me. We should have like Hendrix on here, one of our friends who kind of does like movie financing and budgeting and stuff to explain this to us. But like, so like, um, Air and Chris Long are part of Cedar Park, which is like a production company. They co-produced it with Cross Creek. Cross Creek is financing the film with senior financing coming from Atwater Capital, also Iwood Studios, who I've never heard of before. C C A A C A A, which is the sort of um, agency for creatives. I'm I'm assuming that Air is represented by C A A. Uh, Media Finance packaged the film and arranged the financing, and will broker the domestic uh, d- distribution rights deal. That's a word soup, right? Yeah. Like there's like six different production companies. The key component here is the agency that represents uh, Air. Like that, there's something really odd about this whole thing. And how did you get thirty million dollars? What I my gut says about all this is that David Ayer is not a great creative. He's a great business person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like he understands how to convince people with money to give him money to make the things that he wants to make. And I think that's that might be what he's like the best at because to get thirty million dollars to make a movie like this uh, is mind blowing to me without a major distribution deal already set up right. with a Universal or a Sony or whoever. Like that's how you're going to recoup your cost or even like a Blumhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Like something like that. Uh, none of that was here. This is almost like it was kind of independently produced, but by rich guys, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't like, remember any other time I've seen 
a a a, a business with the word capital in it in the opening <laughs> credits to a movie. Like that straight or, up sounds like something out of the big short where it's just like dumb broy guys that you know are doing a business deals and they're like, "Oh yeah, fuck yeah, let's do let's throw 10 million dollars at this movie about uh um Los Angeles street gangs just like for no reason." I, I, I can see this pitch meeting yeah. like it's at like Nobo in like, you know, <laughs> Hollywood or the hell it is Sunset Boulevard and they're drinking like really nice cocktails. And one guy just came off of work. He's an <laughs> Atwater Capital. He's like a gray suit. He's like a younger dude, but he's got lots of money. And David's there like at the bar and just like he just wheels and deals, man. He yeah. wheels and deals in that world and gets 30 million. Exactly. Um, and, and cro- it's almost like Atwater Capital sounds like something that would start. A, it's almost like VC funding, like you'd start a, a startup company. It, it, exactly. Exactly. But like they had to have known they were just like throwing their money away just because they they want to. Oh, I don't think so. No? I think the people that put, I think the, the people that put the money behind this, I think they they were sold a line of goods uh by air and i think that like that's his specialty right he can convince you that he has the magic when he so clearly does not i mean you painted a nice picture for this pitch meeting and now imagine if air also gets to say and get this Shia's gonna get a real tattoo for the movie (laughs) (laughs) it's like or it could it could have been like the 30 million dollars because he got shia yeah you know what i mean like like i got him in he wants to do this right um but uh, I mean, like, okay, so we've been we're being pretty negative. I don't want to be too negative about it. <laughs> we, Let's talk about the positives. We're of this researchers, production. not critics. No. <laughs> yeah, we're we gonna we gotta stand. We got we gotta be objective here. Let's talk about um, this production process uh, a bit more before we get into the the release and reception. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, that interview it was Variety, not Hollywood Reporter, that interviewed uh the Chicano rapper Mr. Criminal. Um, he actually, and this kind of goes with what you were saying about like Ayer being a wheeling and dealing businessman more than a creative type. Uh, he originally had no contact with Ayer. He was actually given a small role also in 2017's Bright. And basically Ayer uh-huh. was just like a huge fan of this guy's music and just kept calling him and say, and he Mr. Criminal says in an interview, like, I just kept getting uh, notes saying Will Smith director wants to talk to you. And he's like, fine, eventually, I guess I will. And then he's <laughs> and, <laughs> and so then he like he ends up like getting a role at Bright and then on Tax Collector. And then he has this funny little anecdote about uh, when he uh, uh, meets uh, Shia and he he says to he, he says that they starting to freestyle with him. And he says, we started freestyling. David Ayer's recording. I always tell him to send me that footage, but he never did. He didn't want to send it to me because I ate Shia's ass up. He's cool, but he's not fucking with criminal. Uh. It's just, and this adds into the the whole vibe of the set is that it seems like all these actors that are out here doing this press and, you know, maybe it's just for press, but I don't doubt it. I bet it seems like they were just like, I guess they're having fun, even though I don't know how you would have fun in this movie uh-huh. because there's so much like horrific violence Oh, I, I get the feeling that everybody really enjoyed making this movie. Yeah. Like, I feel like... Because um, I didn't yeah, enjoy just, watching. <laughs> it has... Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't either. It's, I mean, it's pretty universal. It's, it's awful. I mean, it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Uh, but it's like, you know, you know, Cynthia Carmona talks about, like, how in Shia goes all in. And, like, they rehearsed this film for two and a half months <laughs> before shooting. So like, what? that makes no sense to me. But, like... <laughs> At the, uh, at the other hand, but then it makes perfect sense because that's what Peter Berg would do. Really? And like he uh-huh. also puts, okay, so David, um, he puts 
everybody through boot camp. Everybody has to go through it. I read this in another article. I forgot to put it in here. But if you are in a movie with David Ayer, he puts you through a martial arts boot camp, <laughs> no matter what your character is. I'm no. not joking. This is real. And so this and then Cynthia says, you know, we uh, we rehearsed this film for two and a half months before we started shooting. That included five hours a day, five days a week and two and a half hours each day was martial arts training. That's for everybody. So it's like there's this there's this professionalism. There's this obsession that he has about doing things well and doing things right. It's just like he's missing the creative spark that makes it interesting, that makes it have emotional depth. Because none of that's here. No. But all the work is here. Um, and, you know, I think he, you know, he, he sounds like he's pretty good with actors and getting them to sort of. I didn't find the acting to be that bad. Oh, it's atrocious. Um, I mean, I mean, it's it's sometimes hard to tell when it's the script versus the acting, of course. But Soto's not good. Soto, I mean, I think we can. I know he's not good. He's not good. He's he. I thought some of the other actors were pretty good, though. I think Carmona has has something there. I think that she was probably the only. But then, then that's a whole other part. Is like the 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 female roles versus the male roles is just insane. But um, I don't know. It's just I feel like they're. There's so there's like such a seriousness to us to it. Right. Like there's maybe two jokes in the whole movie uh, and they're not good jokes. But then like it, it just makes me feel like that. I don't know. I don't know who who enjoys making this kind of stuff. I where is some people some people like the movie. I mean, we should talk about let's talk about the reception. here. Let's get into it. And so, you know, the arty farty people like us with our liberal arts degrees. who become film critics. We hate this film. Yeah. We absolutely hate it. It's like our poison. 18% all critics on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, 36 out of 100. That's one of the lowest scores I've ever seen. Uh, top critics, 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Can't go lower than that, folks. 33 out of 100. Uh, Metacritic, I don't think I've seen something this low in a long time. 22%. Uh, percent. Uh, that's out of 100. That's worse um, than last week's uh, Remember Me from 2010. I mean, these are, yeah, these yeah. are extremely bad reviews from film critics. But um, there's a, like a weird silver lining here, I think, for the movie. Um, the Rotten Tomato audience score is at a 64%. At yeah. least it was when I checked it last, which is not that bad. Um, but then you get back to the sort of already people letterbox 38 out of 100. Whew. Uh, which is w- really bad. 1.9 out of five stars if you go by their ratings. And that's is that's very, very rare. You're going to get below a two uh, for anything. Right. IMDb is at 47 out of 100, which I thought would be more correspond to Rotten Tomatoes a little bit. Uh, obviously, no cinema score because there's not enough theaters. And I think they stopped doing surveys in general. So critics absolutely abhor this film. Uh, and I think people who are into film in general don't like it. Um, but you know, I think maybe some of the middle of the road audiences and I read through the, uh, audience reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and it's pretty fascinating. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, you know, our perspective is obviously a very specific, but it doesn't overlap with a lot of other people's perspectives. I think, you know, our viewpoint of this film and what we're talking about is definitely not what somebody who just watches movies for fun is not super into like, you know, a uh, Kubrick or like Wes Anderson <laughs> and they see this and they're sort of like, Oh yeah. And you can see that in the VOD numbers, right? Right. This thing is successful for the release that it's having. Um, how is it done on a VOD and stuff like that? I mean, it, 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 it's not doing poorly, right? 
No, it's it's not. It's it, I mean, it was number one on iTunes. Uh, it also cleared uh, supposedly a million dollars just off of VOD. Uh, I and when, actually I haven't updated that. It's actually oh, five million dollars. Oh, now. my gosh. Yeah. From, yeah. Fandango, Amazon, Google Play. It's it's nuts. Um, and they they're doing the drive in thing as well. And that's another thing that like the movie gives me that vibe, right? Like that. That 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 B movie seventies or that Z grade straight to DVD nineties vibe, and so I get it. It probably, I I guess, if you like this type of thing, you you would have probably have fun with your friends at the drive-in. Even though I feel gross inside every ten minutes during the movie. <laughs> um, but the, and all here's the thing is like at the end of the day, uh, I think the one thing to consider is not just like the the demeanor of the person going to see this. But like I, I teach a good number of uh, Latino Latina students, and I I'm, I'm curious. I'll I'll ask them. I'll yeah. I'll hundred percent film studies this semester. I'll be curious to see if they if they caught this because like straight up like they're not getting represented in Hollywood and even in movies about like drug cartels and gangland and all that stuff. Like they're still yeah. it's it's still from the perspective of the white cop almost always like Sicario yeah, and, and like Narcos is one of the only other like places like especially after the first couple seasons when uh, Boyd Holbrook's character leaves. Spoiler alert if you're behind on that. Um, but the, I mean you've got comedian George Lewis. You've got the Chicano rappers Mr. Criminal and uh, Caneo and you've got Jimmy Smith's. I mean I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Because I, I guess that was supposed to be a surprise that it's Jimmy Smith's as Wizard, the the lead. Uh, oh, is that who it was? I yeah. couldn't even pick out who it was. I know it it, it, it and that supposedly yeah, that was like supposed to be a, a, a that, and that's also supposed to be like a big reveal at the end that that he's his dad. But that's another thing. Like, but that's uh, their characters. How is that? I mean, that's why <laughs> he doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. No. Like any of that shit. Right. Um. So it's. Uh, but I don't know. It, so let's dive into some of these reviews to sure. kind of give some context of what people were saying. Um, let's start out with a positive one. Uh, the tax collector presents some intriguing setups in the well-paced early going. Comedian George Lopez turns in a strikingly good dramatic performance as David's uncle, Louis. Uh, Richard Roper from Chicago Sometimes. <laughs> of course it's Richard. Uh, I don't even know how I feel about that. Did you think like George Lopez did pretty well? I mean, in, I thought he once, was kind of poor, actually. It, I mean, in comparison to what he, he has to, I don't know. I mean, it, it was a very small role. Like he had like four scenes, maybe. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's. I mean, just. I mean, I think people still. That's still novel to some people when they see a comedian that can, re, you know, remember lines and act them seriously. Um. um <laughs> Zach, what? what I, did you pick this Roger Ebert one? I think you did. Yes. It's. Oh my gosh. Uh, this is Brian DeHalarico again, the one that posited that perhaps this was cobbled together in the editing room because they couldn't <laughs> do a lot of through lines. Probably the biggest through line that like that baffled me is uh, the basically the second act turn when the rival gang just randomly shows up immediately after Bobby Soto's gang has their initial meeting saying, hey, there's rivals in town. And it's just like out of nowhere that they just... <laughs> found their you know like auto mechanic hideout and they start having this shootout it's insane um brian tellerico says once you get past the horrifically casual racist stereotypes non-existent character death incoherent plotting cliche dialogue and baffling editing what's perhaps most insulting is how numbingly boring the whole affair ended up 
And I got to agree. I mean, we've uh, yeah. this is our penultimate episode, our ninth one. Uh, I was probably more bored by this movie than any other one that we've watched so far. Including The Darkness. This is more boring than The Darkness. Yeah. Yep. Um, which I could barely get through. <laughs> yeah. Um, it wasn't, but it wasn't as painful as the last 20 minutes of this. It's just oh, brutal. I know. Uh, and uh, LA Times kind of r- r- sort of agrees with that statement. One of the most atrocious viewing experiences of the year, the tax collector relies on a trite visual language built on obvious flashbacks and bland imagery that match the unimaginatively dreadful writing where every Latino in sight is a gangster. Carlos Aguilar, LA Times. I like that one just because it felt like it's the LA Times. They're obviously going to have a very specific viewpoint of this film um, because he claims yep. that city uh, and he claims that he's representing that city in this film and yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's the one thing too. It's like, are people being too critical of the stereotyping and the cliches and the gangland culture that's in here? Is that something where if it was a different group of people in a different place, would the sort of criticism be that thick? Or do you just feel like that that's, you know, it's a very clear thing to criticize on a movie like this? Like, like, who do you think? Like, if it, if it was who instead of the uh, Chicano gangs? Uh, say like a Boston Irish gang. Like, think <laughs> of like the town. I mean, that's that. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, what was that? Or or what was that movie about? Uh, the um uh the guy from Sons of Anarchy. Or like, we'll say the football say boys in the hood. Boys in the hood. So that okay, that's an interesting parallel because yeah. I mean. Not only do you have to consider the fact that that's a, a movie featuring a black cast by a black writer director, and there's like social tons of social commentary threaded throughout, right? Yeah, and like there's even like a very self-aware scene with Lawrence Fishburne as you know, uh, I forget which character's father, but talking about you know gentrification and uh, how that has become like a root societal cause of gang activity, um, and then there's none of that here, right? So if even if there was like, I get it, you want to make a movie about gangland culture. Sure. But make some kind of point to it. Right. Have some kind of uh, depth to it. But I think that's the key thing here is like uh, that opening title card thesis statement, whatever you want to call it at the beginning. It says, what does it say? Like love, honor, loyalty, family. And it's just like. The, it's like a, a, a ninth graders reading of the Godfather, right? <laughs> like identify I the think, key well, themes. <laughs> I think Arab believes that his focus on the family is doing the Latino culture in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Like be, he's being honest. He's being authentic because of the, the family aspect of this film. Uh, and I didn't really feel like that makes any sense. Does that? I don't think that that really counts as sort of diving into a culture. No. And trying yeah. to understand it more. It seemed very, like you said, it's very shallow. Yes. He's skimming along the surface. Um, I, and at the end of the day, you know, I feel like if he didn't write this, this movie would be way better. Yeah. I just don't think he's a good writer. Right. As a director and a visual even with actors, I think he, he seems like he's decent, like workmanlike almost. But, you know, the core of this film uh, is is incredibly trite, like the L.A. Times said. There's nothing going on here mm-hmm. that has any emotional insider depth. I mean, whatsoever. Yeah, it's completely void of that. Uh, and that's not always the end of the world with a movie, because you can make a movie, 
you know, using cliches and stuff like that and have it be okay. But here it's just, there's nothing beyond sort of Shia LaBeouf's crazy sort of character that like, what do you think of creeper? I mean, oh Cause that's gosh. the thing I, I keep reading these reviews from people and like, they all call it creeper. Shia LaBeouf's character is like a, you know, kind of the hitman part of the tax collector group. Um, as being a, sh- a shining point of this film or a shining beacon in a pretty dark film. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I I have to admit that, like, I was probably most interested when uh, Shy was on the screen, but it was marginal at best because there's such a thinness to the character. It's literally just a guy that really wants to kill people. And and the, yeah, there's nothing else there. Right. Like he I, the, the, the guy does his best to try to, like, go under the surface with that. I mean, he he has a like a very good, like menacing uh, commitment to the role. But it, other than that, it's just like bleh. I mean, it also he, I mean, it, it, it is a supporting role. Yeah. And if you're not going to get depth with the protagonist, you're not going to get depth with the side characters. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's no, 100 percent. And here's and what I think what, what, what it just. Oh, go ahead. I was just saying, like, and I think one of the things that, like, we keep coming back to here, and I think that's where perhaps, like, the dialogue about Shia's character, it, you know, when trailer came out, it thought people thought he was doing brown face and David Ayer took to Twitter to clarify, like, no, he's a he's a white guy. There's always that white guy. And it's almost as if, like, David Ayer was kind of projecting. Right. Like here, like this was my role. Like I was the guy that was, of course, a, yeah, that, 100%. that was appropriating the culture and was embraced be, for whatever reason. Um, and I mean, it's an interesting question. And it's a question that I think is becoming uh, a lot more open out in the open today um, with a lot more uh, uh, blunt conversations about race and about appropriation uh, that I think air is kind of just it's going over his head and so he's not really realizing that it it still is problematic even if technically no he's not playing a latino character it's still it still rubs some people justifiably the wrong way yeah no absolutely he's not the type of guy that reads um (laughs) culture critical theory like he's just not the guy yeah um and what's crazy about all this stuff is like like how did this thing get made $30 $30 million. It's not, it clearly was never a good movie. So anybody invested in this was probably not very smart. Um, but he's, he is going to continue to be successful in this industry. And I think that's the part of this where I watched this movie. One of the reasons I wanted to watch it and leave this um, sort of movie is that uh, it doesn't matter how good or bad his movies are. Like if you look at his track record as the director you look at Suicide Squad, which is a horrendous film uh, on any level that you view it. It's not good. And I'm not just sort of knocking it because it's a comic book movie. Uh, there's a lot wrong with that film. Birds of Prey, pretty good, actually. Not that bad. He executive produced that. <laughs> uh, but then you look at Bright, also terrible film. Yeah. Uh, and now he's got Bright 2 coming out. Mm-hmm. He's going to be filming that. He's doing a remake uh, of The Dirty Dozen. Dirty Dozen. And so like this is and that's why I bring up Peter Berg. He, Peter Berg never stops working. Mm-hmm. He could make like six, you know, he had like a uh, deep water horizon. That was terrible. Patriot's day also kind of like why? Um, and he does that sort of stuff, but he's never not going to have opportunity. So like one of the things that like you, you know, you think about representation and power uh, and race in, in the, in the movie theater industry and, and air is a perfect example of failing upwards 
and never having having to be accountable for the actual quality of his work. Yeah, um, and and, and he, think, he's missing the point. I mean, he there was an article in Variety about Latinx representation in Hollywood, and he's quoted as saying, "I always grew up around Chicanos. Where's the effing Hollywood Chicano superstar?" And he's like not understanding that it's not just like in front of the camera that's important; it's also behind. And uh, it just, I mean, if you think about it, like there there was there's this has been a huge conversation uh, in recent years because you've got. Uh, Alejandro Inarito and Al- Alfonso Cuaron and Guillermo del Toro and like the thing that we're forgetting is that like these are like legit uh, um, Latino people Hispanic people that uh, did not grow up in America and so there's an element of like they are still like yeah. educated and very well uh, read and so like we ha- we're, we're missing that whole culture that is America's behind the times on and Hollywood's even more behind the times are on. And I, I just hope that we would see that. Cause I would, I would love to see a genuinely good, deep meditation on uh, these kinds of characters from somebody that actually knew how to write a story. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately we did not get that with the tax <laughs> collector. Um, so I'm happy to put this, this one behind us. Uh, what are we doing next week? As our season finale, season one. Yes, we're gonna take a break after next week's final episode for uh, I don't know, a couple weeks maybe, and yeah. uh, debrief and kind of uh, get out there and try to get people to hear the uh, previous episodes. Definitely check them all out. But we are going to end on a high note. It's been a little while since we've done a good movie. Um, we are going to look at 2014's uh, thriller. I guess it is. Nightcrawler. I guess you would call it a thriller. Yeah, it's a thriller. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's a classic. So if you haven't seen Nightcrawler, it's on Netflix. Uh, and then we're going to do the show next week. I'm really excited about it. Me too. I think it's a, a fantastic movie, and I really want to dive in to how that thing was made. In any event, thanks for listening, folks. This has been the Film Trace Podcast. Mm-hmm.